All right, today's scripture passage is Philippians 3, 1 through 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Father, help us to count everything that we have as loss for the gain that we receive through you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word today, and I pray that you will bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, please go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians is in the New Testament. It's right after Ephesians, right before Colossians, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these. That's our gift to you guys. This is not a pew Bible to be used and put back because they're paperback and they get tethered. These are free gifts, so if anyone doesn't have a copy of God's Word, there you go. Um, so what we're doing uh, currently, we're in a, a sermon series in which we're working our way through the book of Philippians. And what we're doing as we go through this, we've entitled this series, Glory and. Glory and. What we're doing in the series is that we're working our way through Philippians and we're looking at how the glory of God impacts our lives. How it absolutely influences and changes and affects every part, every detail of our lives. So we looked at the glory of God and our identity. The glory of God and hope, the glory of God and joy, the glory of God and perspective, and so on and so on. So we're, we're working our way through this, and, and we're seeing how the glory of God changes us. It transforms us. It, it has a profound effect on every little tidbit of our lives. It reorients our, our hearts and our emotions. It reshapes it, our thinking, it conforms our thinking to something else. It strengthens our soul. And I would even say that it energizes our very bodies. That the glory of God has this profound effect on every part of our being. There's not a part that isn't touched on some level profoundly, actually, by the glory of God. So we're working through Philippians and we're seeing what this looks like. The effect that it has on our lives. In other words, we're looking through Philippians and seeing what it looks like to be a Christian. We're working our way through this book of the Bible and seeing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And a follower of Jesus is someone who is drawn toward the glory of God and someone whose life is driven by the glory of God. We're reoriented, we're reshaped, we're remolded into something completely different. That's, a, that's what a follower of Jesus is. That's what we do. I, I'd go so far as to say that the glory of God is what gives meaning to our life. It's what gives purpose to our life. It's what gives direction to our life. 
How about this one? The glory of God is the very context in which we live our lives. What does that mean? It's our atmosphere. It's, it's our environment. It's our ecosystem. It's our natural habitat. We were created and then recreated through the gospel in Jesus Christ in such a way that the glory of God is home. And so now, what is all this glory talk? When I refer to the glory of God, what I'm referring to, I'm talking about God himself. I'm talking about the totality of the fullness of the vastness of God and who he is. He is, he is unrivaled beauty. He is unparalleled power. His love is eternal. His mercy is matchless. His wisdom is everlasting. His, his renown has no bounds. His resplendence has no limit. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about who God is, the greatness and the goodness and the the grace of the magnificent one that we call God, Lord Almighty. We're talking about the one who created all things. So he created the heavens and the earth. He created time and space. He created matter and energy. He created all things animate and inanimate. All things out of nothing. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about the sovereign, triune, self-existing God who is just because he is. And if that's not enough, that God invites each of us to know him. Unrivaled beauty, unparalleled power invites you into his presence. And if if we enter into the presence of God, so if we accept God's invitation to know him personally, to know his love and his, his compassion and his sympathy and his grace, if we enter into that, it changes us. It transforms every part of our life in such a way that we no longer live for our glory. We no longer live for the glory of the world. We now live. We are stoked by the glory of God and about his name and furthering the renown and the prestige, the splendor of Jesus. So as we we get into our text here, you know, into Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're specifically looking at how the glory of God impacts our worship. Glory and worship, how the magnificence, the resplendence of the totality of the fullness of the vastness of God compels us to live lives that honor him, that please him, that glorify his name. Um, let me ask you this. Does the, the number A, A is an apple, A113 mean anything to anyone? A113. You've probably missed this. It's everywhere. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. It is uh, Andy's mom's license plate number in Toy Story. It's the door number, a door number in Monsters University. It's a courtroom number in the movie Up. It's the camera model number in Finding Nemo. It's also on a rat's ear tag in Ratatouille. It's the train number in Cars. It's also in The Hunger Games, and it's also in Mission Impossible movies. 
A113. What does that mean? A113 was a classroom number at Cal Arts, at the California Institute of Arts, of the Arts. So whenever you see A113 in a movie, it means that a Cal Arts alum has worked on that project, on that film, on that movie. That's what it means. That someone who went to the school and actually had a class in this one classroom, now works for Pixar apparently, and so they're putting this number anywhere they can find it, right? Anywhere, whether we'll put, it, we'll put it here, the license plate number, that'll be cool. We'll let everyone know that a Cal Arts person was here. It's their calling card. It's their calling card. What, it's their way of publicly communicating with the world that they are involved in this specific project. Well, folks, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are worshipers of God, we have a calling card, and our calling card is worshiping God. That's our calling card in the world. That's how we communicate to the world that we belong to Jesus, that we are absolutely in love with God, and that we are all about the glory of Christ. That's our calling card. So just like a Cal Arts alum puts their calling out, their, their calling out card, the call out card out there for the world to see, so do we. We're to be out there publicly demonstrating our worship of God, our loyalty to God, our devotion to Him for who He is and all that He's done. Cal Arts people, they put their calling card on film projects. Christians, we put our calling card on God's project. What is God's project? Reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is making disciples of people. It is taking the good news of Christ, the grace of God, sharing it with others that they too may become worshipers of God. That is God's project. And so that is what we're here to do. We are here to worship God by being involved in his project. And I'll go so far as to say this, and this, this is, might kind of cause some people to squint a little bit and cock their head because you, maybe you've never heard something this this way. But the primary means of worshiping God on earth is by serving the mission of God on earth. The primary means in which we worship God and honor Him is by serving what it is that God is doing, publicly demonstrating to the world that we are on a mission with God. That's worship. So if we're all about this glory, because everybody smiles when I start talking about the resplendence and the vastness and the totality and the fullness and the glory of the self-existing, all can, can do all things and knows all things, God, that's great. But if that is what we're all about, then it means being busy about what it is that God is doing. And that, folks, is worship. Now, worship means lots of different things, and they're all correct. It, it means enjoying God. Clearly, that's worship. To worship God means to enjoy him, enjoy his presence, to be close to him. It, it means experiencing God's love and reciprocating in kind God's love. That's worship. Right? It's giving all of ourselves over to the Lord, our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength. That's worship. It's giving of ourselves and trusting our lives over into his care. Right? That, that's 
worship. It's ascribing worth to God. It is declaring who he is. Like, God, you're great, you're good. These songs that we're singing, right? Declaring the greatness and the worth of God. That's, that's, clearly, that's clearly worship. All those things are worship. It's bowing before him, being humbled before his presence, like being prostrate before the fullness of the vastness and totality of God. Like, that's worship. It's drawing near Drawing close, drawing near to God. All right, so here's the question. If drawing near to God is worship, then how can we not draw near to what he is doing? So let me explain to you this way. If, uh, well, God is not some distant, far off, hands off, hands off kind of a God. He is very much here in this world and very active in this world. He's busy in this world. God has a plan. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's God's plan. God is busy securing a people for his own possession for all time, a people that love him and are going to be enjoyed and loved by him. That's God's plan. So what's Jesus doing? He's building his church right? The gospel is going out. People are being saved. They're being converted. They're accepting Jesus as Lord. And so God, Jesus is building his church. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's busy right now convicting the world, world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So God is active. He's busy. He's furthering his plan, his mission in this world. So if God is busy, active in the world, and worship means drawing near and close to him. How can worship mean anything other than drawing near to what he's doing? You know, I was talking with Brent a little earlier about this, this very thing, and he said it right. We have this, this tendency to compartmentalize everything in the United States, and even as Christians. Well, I have my worship time, and I have my Bible study time, and I have my service time, and I have my family time and I have this time and I go to work and I got my Bojangles time sadly I heard Bojangles isn't coming to Andrew this year that's a topic for another day when we talk about lamentations and calamities but anyway um yet the glory of God's better than that so uh <laughs> anyway so we compartmentalize everything in our lives and when Really, the way the Christian experience is meant to be, it's all together simultaneously. It, it's, there is no worship time in evangelism time. Worship is evangelism. Evangelism is worship. Mission is teaching. Teaching is witnessing. Witnessing is worshiping. It's all together. That's what it means. We are a Christian all the time, regardless of the specific context in which we're in at that moment. So it is worshiping God. If that's what God is doing, he's actively involved in the world and, and worshiping him is drawing close and it can only mean drawing close to what he is doing in this world. It is in actively fulfilling what it is that God is fulfilling. That's worship. It can't be any other way. Uh, some people think of worship as retreating away from the world. I got to get away from the world. I got to go somewhere where I can worship. Where worship is actually invading the world. It's being on mission, just like Jesus did. Jesus came to earth to worship. He invaded the world with the glory of God's grace. So we're doing no different than what Jesus did. We're worshiping in the, in the context of serving God and serving the mission of God. And for Anthem, this is how we say it. This is our mission, to fill Andrew and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. That's the mission. That's what God is doing. 
So we call it our mission statement. It really is our worship statement. It's our worship statement. Now, yes, absolutely, I agree and amen that worship means solitude at times with God. Have some time where you sit quietly with just God and you read your Bible and pray. Absolutely. If you can take a day to do it, do it. If you can take a weekend retreat, do it. If you can take a week to do it, go do that. We need times, seasons, moments in our day or week where we have to get away with just God and get away from something. Yes, that is worship. Pray, confess your sin, repent of it, receive God's grace. Absolutely. Clearly, it means getting together with other followers of Jesus and singing with joy and singing loudly. Clearly, that's worship. Getting together with other believers and studying the Bible, that's worship. Absolutely. Without, without a doubt, that's all worship. But if we truly desire to honor the greatness of the fullness of the totality of, the, of God, then it means serving the mission that he himself is serving. It can't be any other way. We have to be publicly involved, demonstrating our allegiance to God. In other words, demonstrating our worship of God, and we do that by serving the very mission that he has entrusted to us, folks. That's our calling card. That's our A113. Right. Right there. So we're going to get into the text. We're going to get a picture of what it means to be an authentic worshiper of God. We're going to hopefully see the connection between worship and mission in the text here. We're going to see that the primary means of worshiping God on earth is serving the mission of God on earth. So verse 1, chapter 3, Paul begins and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What does rejoice mean? It means to be happy. It means to be glad. So here's, here's what believers, Christians, are supposed to do. Be fully happy in Christ all the time. Like, genuinely, authentically be glad, regardless of your circumstances. That seems particularly difficult because the reality is that life is particularly hard. I mean, life is just straight chaos. It's mayhem and foolishness all the time. It's just frenzied activity constantly. Like, it doesn't stop. It's one thing right after the other. And that's just normal. That's just the typical day. After that, child gets sick. Transmission goes out in the car. Unexpected bill in the mail. And then you add to that the big stuff, mom gets cancer. Marital problems. Um, you lose your job. Add to that our struggles with our own sin. Lust, pride, anger, fear, jealousy, lack of patience, grumbling. And then you add to that one, two, three bad decisions, and what do you have? You got July. I mean, it's July. It's just like, this is, this is what life is. And, and the thing is that, like, as a pastor, I, I have the opportunity and the privilege to talk to a lot of people about life. And, and it's clear that we are struggling just to make it through our day. Like, when we're, we're just in survival mode, 
we're just trying to, like, it's victory to get to the end of the day without a total meltdown. It's utter victory to get to Friday without throwing in the towel. Like, we're just strictly trying to survive here. And then we're supposed to do all things with all, like, gladness and all happy? How? How do you do that? And verse 1 tells us, rejoice in the Lord. What that means is be happy in Jesus. And let me explain to you what it means to be happy in Jesus. Uh, One of my favorite stories in the Bible is from Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells 72 of his disciples to go out on this short-term mission trip, to go visit cities around Israel and so forth. And they get to do some, like, mind-blowing cool stuff. They go out there, they get to heal the sick. They're involved with miraculous, supernatural, God-ordained activity where people are getting healed and all kinds of cool stuff is happening. But what really gets them jazzed up, what really gets them excited in Luke chapter 10, is that they're able to cast off demons. So they come back from this mission trip, I mean, and they're just raving. They're going on and on, and they sit down with Jesus. Jesus, guess what? As if he didn't know. Jesus, you won't believe what happened. We got to, like, cast off demons. And Jesus, because he's Jesus and he's nice, he's like, I know. It's amazing. Like, what you did was amazing. You got to be part of the front lines, the first wave of attack against the kingdom of darkness. I saw it. When I saw it, I even saw Satan falling from the sky. Like, wow, like they got to be a part of something profound. Nevertheless, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Folks, this is what it means to be happy in Jesus. It means being happy, glad, delighting in the fact that your name is inscribed in heaven. So here's the reality of the situation. Right now, God is in heaven sitting on his throne, and on his lap there is a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is written the name of every person who's ever placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who went to a cross and he was sacrificed on our behalf. He endured this horrible physical death and he endured the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. So he sacrificed, he bled and he died so that you would avoid that kind of death. That you may be spared and forgiven and everyone in who, or whosoever believes in Jesus. They trust their lives over to Jesus, which means that you entrust your life over into Jesus' cares. Every person, their name is written in that book. And it's written in the blood of Christ, which means that it can never, ever be erased. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Isn't that good? Is that not good? That's absolutely pure goodness right there. Pure goodness right there. So if your name is written in that book, you know, if you have accepted the gospel, you're a follower of Jesus, if your name is written there, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Be happy in Jesus. Worship God with gladness. You will one day be escorted into the riches of God's grace, and there every one of your tears is going to get wiped away personally by God. And every one of your infirmities God himself is going to heal and take it away. 
in every one of your heartbreaks and your heartaches, Jesus in that moment is going to remove it from you. That's good stuff. Rejoice. And if you don't know if your name is written there or if you're saying, I don't know that it is, it probably isn't, you can settle that right now. Where you're sitting, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to talk to anyone. In the privacy of your own heart, pray to God, God, I want that. I need me some of that. I want my name written in that book. Therefore, Lord, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. That's okay. He knows. He loves you anyway, right? That's why it's called grace. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. And I believe in the sacrifice that he did on my behalf on the cross. And I believe that he died. I believe on the third day he rose from the dead because he conquered sin and death and all of its ugliness. Lord, I, I, I need me some of that until you pray and you embrace the gospel. In that moment, you know your name is written in that book. Just like that. That's why it's called grace. It's mercy. Just like that. So if you haven't done that, I would say, man, start there. You'll be transformed into a person that can rejoice despite life's ugly circumstances. All right, moving on. From a personality standpoint, there are two types of people in this room. There are those of us who are more positive, more optimistic, more upbeat. And then there are some of those, some of us, who are more negative, more pessimistic, more melancholy. Right, it's just our personalities. We have a natural disposition to be one or the other. We have a predisposition to either be very cheery or a bit despondent. Right? I mean, that's... All of us, we're one or the other. We're one or the other. So typically in Christian circles, we think of those that are more positive, upbeat, cheerful, as more spiritually mature. The reason we think that way is because, well, followers of Jesus are supposed to be happy. And so happy people clearly are more spiritual than non-happy people. And the problem with that is this, or where we have to be careful with that, is that there are people that are just simply happy. There is a big difference between being happy and being happy in Jesus. There is a profound difference between the two. Uh, one of my best friends from college is absolutely the happiest person that I know in the world. And my friend is a self-admitted atheist. My boy has never seen a bad day. My friend wakes up on the right side of the bed every day. He's not a, a glass half full person. He is a glass almost full kind of person. Like, I mean, it is, it, it's wonderful being around him because it's just fun. It's a delight. And he's, he's happy all the time. The problem is that he's just happy because it's a byproduct of his personality. He's not happy in Jesus. Like, his happiness doesn't come from knowing God and from knowing the goodness of God, the totality of the fullness of the vastness of God. It doesn't come from that. It's just a byproduct of his personality. So my point is this. If you are someone that is more positive, more optimistic, more cheerful, one of those, evaluate yourself. Are you happy just because you're happy? Or are you happy in Jesus? There's a difference. Like, don't just be happy count your blessings like pray to God be thankful for what he's given to you right 
think about the gospel. Think about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Think about how much God loves you and like you loving him back. And then let that overwhelm your heart to such a point that now you're not just happy. You're happy in Jesus. In other words, you're rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if you're one of those that is more on the pessimistic, negative, melancholy side, then your exercise is going to be a little bit different when it comes to this. Typically, folks that fall into that category are, it's easy for them to justify their mood, to hide behind it. Well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. That's just my personality. So it becomes a crutch. It becomes an excuse to just sit in that. And the reality is that God has called us, he instructs us in his word to be joyful, to be cheerful, to be glad, and to be happy. So he calls us to that. So if you're one of those that falls in there, this is, this is how you do. You, you, this is what you do. You evaluate yourself. It's like, what is it that is keeping me from experiencing the joy of the Lord? What thoughts are holding me captive? What, what things am I fixated on that are, that are keeping me down? What am I allowing to steal my joy? So you evaluate your heart that way. That you may want to consider, like, are you surrounding yourself with Christians who can lift you up, that can prop you up? Or are you secluding yourself in such a way that you can't help but be fixated on the stuff that isn't ideal in life? So that's the exercise. So what you do, you stop, you count your blessings. You thank God for what you do have. You think about the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done. You think about God's love, and you think about your love for him, and then voila, you go from one from unhappy to happy, and not just happy, but happy in Jesus, which means rejoicing in the Lord. And the reason I say all of that, the reason that is so important, is because our rejoicing in the Lord, our joy, our joy, our ability to worship with gladness directly impacts our witness. It complete, there's a direct line between how much joy in the Lord I'm experiencing and how able I am to be on mission to publicly demonstrate that I'm for God and with God and he's with me and I'm working with him and I'm drawing near and that I'm, I'm actively a part of his, his work on earth. So if you're just happy, don't just be happy, be happy in the Lord because just being happy doesn't advance the gospel. It just doesn't do it. And being unhappy clearly doesn't do that either. So what we need, what the world needs, what God desires is for believers to be rejoicing in the Lord so that their happiness is a result of Jesus in their life and therefore that draws people to Christ. That draws him. That's when people start saying there's something different about you. That's when people start noticing something else and they start seeing the presence of God in your life. So if your name is written in heaven, rejoice in the Lord. If you rejoice in the Lord, people will be drawn to Jesus. And if people are drawn to Jesus, that means you're on mission. God is using you, folks. That's worship. That's our calling card. All right. The second half of verse 1, Paul says, To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's some things he's going to repeat. He's taught them some stuff in the past. He's going to repeat it. He's going to repeat it because it's good for us to hear things over and over again because we forget easily 
we forget quickly. We oftentimes want to forget. So it's good to be reminded. Specifically, what we're reminded, what Paul reminds us of is in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out means to beware, to watch out. To be on the lookout. And so what Paul is saying in this strong warning is like, be on the lookout for false teachers, for those who teach something other than God's truth. Like, watch out, because they're there. They're around. They're everywhere. In this case, they're specifically Judaizers. And what a, a Judaizer was back in the day was a Jewish person who thought themselves to be a Christian, but in reality, they, were, they weren't a Christian. They thought they were. They were a religious sect that blurred the lines between what it meant to be Jewish and what it meant to be Christian. They blurred it in this way. They would tell a Gentile. So a Gentile is someone that is ethnically not Jewish. So you have Jews and everyone else. Everyone else is Gentile. Okay. They, these Judaizers would tell Gentiles, before you can become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And the way, and men... Uh, enjoy this one. And the way, man, you become a Jew is by circumcision, regardless of your age. Okay, yeah, that sounds like fun. And, and so, yeah, sign me up for that religion. And, and so anyway, so they would go around telling people that they had to completely give themselves over to Old Testament law. And they had to abide by that, and then they could become a Christian, which is complete falsehood because Jesus came to release us from the law. He came to fulfill it himself. So we are now set free from the law. So yes, we strive to live by God's moral law, but we are completely released from the ritual law of the Old Testament, which included circumcision. So people have to be on the lookout. And, you know, today we don't have to worry so much about Judaizers. Not many people running around there saying, you must first become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You don't run into that. But there's false teaching everywhere, everywhere. I mean, be careful what's on TV and the Internet. There is false philosophies, religions all the way, all around us. And part of our worshiping of God means safeguarding the truth that he's revealed to us. It's guarding it, right? That's part of, what it, that's part of our worship to God. So that means we have to know what he's revealed to us in Scripture. We have to read the Bible and understand it, right? We have to, we have to know it. We have to safeguard it. The other part of that is that we have to promote it. That we have to spread the truth. So it's not just safeguarding it, but it's advancing the truth. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says very famously, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them in the name, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's worship. Teaching other people about Jesus is worship. Making disciples is worship. Advancing the mission of God is worship. How do we worship God on earth? What is the primary means? It is by publicly demonstrating that we are actively involved with what it is that God is involved in. That is our calling card. That's what it means to worship. All right, moving on. Verse 3. 
For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There we refers to Christians. We Christians are the true circumcision, not because we've been cut in the flesh, but because we have a new heart. By grace, through faith, we are recreated in Christ Jesus. Before we understood and accepted the gospel, we were dead in our sin. We were spiritually dead. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are made alive. We are awakened. We are awakened to God. We receive a new heart. We're a new creation, and we're created to live for the glory of God. And then there's three things in verse 3 that Paul specifically says are characteristic of what it means to be a a follower of Jesus. The first thing he says is that we worship by the Spirit. You see that? You worship by the Spirit. The word worship there is the Greek word latruo. And what Latruo means is to serve. So what Paul is saying, that we serve by the Spirit. Worship and serving are synonyms of one another. And the means by which we serve God, the means by which we worship God, is by God. It's by the very Spirit of God. It is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who enables us to serve God and to worship God. It is by him. It is only by him. And in the way that that takes place, first and foremost, it is the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives, convicts us of our sin, convicts us of our need for Jesus so that we accept the gospel. That's number one. Number two, the Holy Spirit comes in, gives us spiritual gifts. So every follower of Jesus has at least one spiritual gift for the purpose of the mission, for the purpose of ministry, for the good of the church, for, for, for the glory of God. Right, so the Holy Spirit saves us, gives us these gifts, and then the Holy Spirit empowers us for the work that he calls us to do. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, earth. See, like it's worship there clearly has everything to do with evangelism and mission and witnessing and being proactive and being involved with what it is that God is doing. That's our calling card. That's our A113. Empowered by God to do the very thing that he calls us to do. The next phrase in verse 3 is that we're to glory in Christ Jesus. To glory means to brag. To glory means to boast. Boasting in yourself, bad. Boasting in Jesus, good. Welcome to the caveman portion of our sermon. <laughs> to, to glory means to rave. To rave about something. It means to applaud something. The, the nice big biblical word is to exalt or to extol something. To ascribe, to, like to, to lift it up, right? That's what it means to boast, to glory in Jesus. So now the question is, how do, we, how do we glory in Christ? We do so by boasting in the gospel, by, by glorying in the cross. This is, listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is. That's worship. It is bragging not only about Jesus, but about what Jesus did. Now, do you brag to yourself? No, that's weird, right? No, if you brag about yourself, you brag to other people, right? Well, we said boasting about self, bad. Boasting about Jesus, good. Well, that means that I have to tell others 
right? Like boasting, bragging, exalting Jesus means by definition bragging about Jesus to other people. So there you have it. Worshiping God means telling people about God. Glorying in Jesus means glorifying his name and furthering his name, telling people, demonstrating our involvement in what God is doing that way. And the third phrase is, put no confidence in the flesh. As followers of Jesus, we put no confidence in ourselves. We don't trust our abilities. We don't put faith in our achievements. Right? We don't put our hope in our own initiative. No, we put our faith and our trust and our confidence and our hope completely and fully on the po- in the power, the righteousness, the goodness, the greatness, the gentleness of God. That, that is what we place our confidence in. And, and what happens in verses 4, 5, and 6, it's real simple. Paul uses him, himself as an example of what it means not to put confidence in yourself. So in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul actually gives us a pretty stout resume because if anyone could or should have confidence in who they are, it is the Apostle Paul. He was circumcised eight days after his birth, which completely obeyed the Old Testament law. And he was an Israelite. Not just an, I mean, he was born into God's people, right? And not just that, though. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which specifically means he can trace his ancestry all the way back to Benjamin, one of the children of Jacob. I mean, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. When he, when he says that, he's like, I'm the real deal. Like, he is like a patriot, ethnically and religiously, in every way. There is no one more Jewish than Paul. His, his heritage was that. And then, on top of that, he's a Pharisee. So he's schooled. He is trained and educated in the finer points of Old Testament law. And he's a religious leader, and he's so devout that he goes out and he's killing Christians because he sees them as an abomination before God. That's Paul. So if anyone could brag about how religious they are, and it actually says that he's blameless when it comes to righteousness and stuff. Not that he was sinless or perfect, but from an exterior standpoint, from the outside looking in, no one could bring a charge against him. Like he played the game really well. He played it really well. He looked the part. He was blameless. No one could bring anything against him. But yet, he puts no confidence in his heritage and no confidence in his achievements. Instead, look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever earthly, worldly gain he had as a result of him being born of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite, whatever gain he had as a result of his education and his career, he actually looked back and said, it's meaningless. Like he actually started evaluating his life in in light of having met Jesus. And he goes, man, I'd give that all up all day, any day. It doesn't mean anything it's he looks back on his life and he actually declares it to be foolish why because he met christ he experienced the glory of god's grace and it changed him it changed him so profoundly that instead of living for his glory he began to live for the glory of jesus and that's what he says there in verse 7 for the sake of christ 
for the sake of Christ, to further the glory of Jesus, to expand the renown of the Savior. That He gives it all up. He gives it all up just so that Jesus could get more props and more kudos and more acclaim in the world. He gladly does it. And that's what it means to live for the sake of Christ. It's gladly letting go of the world so that we may grab onto Christ and further his mission. That's our environment, folks. That's the glory of God. That's our environment. That's our atmosphere. That's our habitat. That's home. That's home base. That's everything. And as we live in that and we like just relish in that and promote it, that's worship. That's our calling card. You know, that it's, it's simply doing what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life that other people may come to glory. As followers of Jesus, we give our lives so that other people could come to glory. We give over time and our money. We invest in the ministry. We do all these things so that others may be drawn out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We do it so that other people can also rejoice in the Lord. We do this so that other people may also worship by the Spirit. We do this so that other people may glory in Christ. We do this so that other people may not put confidence in the flesh, but put their confidence in God. That's worship. Living for the sake of Jesus at Anthem Church. Filling Andrew in the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. That's the mission. Um, I don't know if you heard in the story, in the story, in the news, uh, this happened fairly recently. Um, a boy got lost, young boy got lost out in the North Carolina mountains. And huge search rescue effort begins. And I mean, there's family, there's friends, there's police, there's sheriff, there's volunteers. And there's this army of people trying to get out there and find this little boy because, you know, and it was, it was cold, so he could die of hypothermia. But what if he runs into an animal? You know, if he's out there long enough, what about thirsting to death, dehydration? And so there's this massive rescue effort going on. And more and more people are coming, and even families are coming to join the rescue effort. Now, they're bringing little kids with them. And it, the, the, the rescue effort got so big that they, they actually built a camp for all the people and had to create some kind of lodging and stuff like that. And uh, they weren't there long, and they looked at all the kids, and they said, well, man, we've got to have something for the children so some people stopped looking, searching, and started doing a bunch of activities, like games for the children. And then what happened, some people started complaining. Well, the accommodations just aren't really that nice. They're not really comfortable. So they stopped searching, and they started working on their living quarters. And then what happened, some people started complaining that gets boring at night sometimes. So some people stopped searching and started putting on shows and entertaining at night because people were getting bored and, and just having fun. And then one day, this guy, come, he's heard that this boy is missing. And so he comes running into the camp, and, and he's expecting not to see anyone there because they're supposed to be out there searching for the little boy. And he sees everyone in the camp, and they're extremely busy, but no one is looking for the boy. And in panic, he, he yells out and he confronts the people, there's a boy missing and he's going to die. He's going to die. We have to get out there. And the people just kind of mocked him. Oh, you're one of those. 
you're one of those fanatics. You know, keep your opinion to yourself. If the boy wants to be found, he knows where we are. All right. The story is true, not the part about the boy being lost in the woods. It's true in this sense. There's a world desperately in need of rescue. Billions of people are living without the hope of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, what happens in most of our churches and with most Christians is that we neglect the very mission that God has called us into despite what's going on out there. Because we'd rather complain about our worship experiences on Sunday morning and our worship style and how we do music. And we, we'd rather complain about what's going on here and that and, and all that. We get distracted by those sorts of things all the time. Right? We start grumbling, I'm not being fed. And usually it's the mature people that say something like that. I'm not being fed. Meanwhile, no one's serving. We're... we're where feeding takes place. John chapter 8. There's a desperate, broken, hopeless world, and people are sitting in their church pews, right, all comfy, and in their seats, all happy, and just scratching some religious itch, but not truly worshiping because they are not on mission with God. So this is, this is what excites me. We're eight months into the life of our church. We're small. We're young. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to f- understand how to do this. But we have an opportunity to not make the mistake that so many others have made before us. And that has become all like huddled together and we have our little churchy time and then we just go about our business we actually get to institutionalize and ingrain into the dna of our church that we will do anything and everything to bring people to jesus christ folks like our monetary resources our calendar is devoted to that everything we do here on sunday mornings is about helping people try to get closer to jesus everything we do during the week and i mean it's it's for that. It's why we go to Haiti. And, and, and what excites me is like, if we could be as a small group, because God doesn't need many people. He doesn't need anyone, but he does invite us into his plan. Like, he can take a few people and do a massive movement. You want to see the Spirit of God move in your life? Get missional. Get evangelistic. Be a witness for Jesus. You want to see God profoundly do something in you? You want to worship God and draw really, really close to him? Get on mission. Invite people to church. Invite people to your small group, to your A-team. If you're not in A-team, get in one so that you can invite people to your small group and to your A-team. Serve in a ministry here because all our ministries about being mission, being missional for the glory of Jesus. Go to Haiti with us next summer, June 20th through the 27th. If you can't go, help give. We're trying to collect enough money so we can send another trip next year. This is all about living for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we get to do that as Anthem Church. Praise God. And I'm glad we have the nice facilities. And yeah, we put time into this. But man, this is, this is so inconsequential to what we're really here to do. This is why we planted this church. So everybody, I'm just going to ask everyone to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to give you a minute to respond to God's word. You know, if, if you've never accepted 
Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may today be the day that you do that so you can begin to rejoice because your name is written in heaven. If your name is written in heaven, are you worshiping God? Are you living for His glory? Are you devoted to the mission that God Himself is devoted to? So ask for God to bring people into your life to disciple. Ask for the boldness to share your faith with others. Ask for God to give you the the capacity to serve along other believers, to serve in the church and to serve the gospel. If if you find yourself that you're not really worshiping, you're not really on mission, then confess it. God loves you. The gospel proves that. God loves you. Just repent and devote yourself to publicly demonstrating your worship of God by serving the mission of God. Lord, Father, we glorify your name. You are the all-powerful creator. You are holy God. You are conqueror of death. You are good and benevolent. And we worship you. We glorify your name as our king, our God, our savior, our judge. Lord, and we praise you that you have invited us into your presence, that you want us close to you. You want us near to you where we can experience your greatness and your grace, Lord. And I praise you for that. Lord, I pray on behalf of everyone that we would live on mission for you, Lord, that we would see the hopelessness around us, the desperation around us, Lord, and that we would reach out to share the gospel, that we would make relationships in order to to share our faith with others, Lord, that we would be your hands and feet and serve the needy and the poor and the desperate, Lord, that we would go on mission trips, that we would support your mission, that we would serve at our church alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to invite people to our small groups and to church and into ministry, Lord. Use us to make disciples, Lord. Use us to take the gospel into Andrew and throughout this world. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.